this is a funny one, huh? Hello. Oh, hello. <laughs> Entertain me. <laughs> Jump into this. <laughs> Jump now. in and make me laugh. <laughs> it's pretty humorous. I mean, it is a real crime. Some people were hurt, but n- nobody died. And uh, so we're men- allowed to laugh. <laughs> yeah, and many of the many of the victims. Um, well, they have a different stance on this whole thing than course, you would expect. Than, but, so. Yeah. Okay. So uh, today I'm doing the story, the origin story behind Stockholm Syndrome. Um, <laughs> a truly humorous topic. <laughs> well, you're going to be surprised. Oh, yeah, it no. really is. Um, my next story involves a victim who experienced uh, what was described as Stockholm Syndrome. And so when I was trying to research like how to briefly explain it in that story, I ended up doing such a deep dive that I found the origin story and it was so interesting yeah. that I thought it would be cool to cover it for this episode. Oh, I'm excited. I heard you like laughing as you were researching. So it made me want to be a part of the joke. <laughs> and now I get to be. <laughs> so I got all my information from a book called Six Days in August by David King, episode 113 of the podcast Criminal and episode 13 of the podcast Memory Motel. So it was just before 10 a.m. on August 23rd, 1973. 23-year-old Kristen and Mark arrived at Credit Bank, a very large bank in the middle of a very, very busy like financial district square in Stockholm, Sweden. Okay. Kristen worked in a small office in the far, far back in the bank. It's one of those large banks like out of the movies that like looks like a palace. It's got like, you know, a grand mahogany staircase and marble pillars and like tons of bank teller booths. It's mm-hmm. like stately yeah it's one of those banks that you see in movies where you're like well that's not my local chase that's not like bank of america (laughs) here in here in la no so Kristen didn't work up in the front she worked in some tiny office in the back and she grabbed a stack of papers and came up with an excuse to go into the lobby to chat with a bank teller that she had a crush on this guy named uh bo nelson So she's standing there flirting and then all of a sudden hears what she thinks is gunfire. So without hesitation, she drops the stack of paper she was holding and hits the ground flat. And then she is mortified to realize not a single person inside the bank reacted the way that she did. I relate to her. I literally pictured you doing it and I started laughing so hard because coming up all sly trying to flirt and then can't like, flirt. like in a movie yeah can't yeah. flirt yeah. <laughs> and then <laughs> mid flirt you just throw your papers up in the Panic. ground and you're just flat on the ground and he's like what is happening are you okay <laughs> she's weird <laughs> anyways she actually ended up being correct a man had entered the bank wearing a woman's wig terrible makeup and he was holding a large <laughs> machine gun i love that you specified terrible makeup as if it wasn't like a good smoky eye it was like a <laughs> shitty one <laughs> no i mean it was like a skin tone that didn't match his and then like like really dramatic like blush oh like it, joker it, almost it, yeah it was very jokery and it, it was just to try to disguise his face gotcha. so it wasn't i just meant like it wasn't the uh, technique wasn't <laughs> he had terrible technique yeah <laughs> i love that He had a canvas bag full of ropes, knives, bomb-making materials, and a radio. He shot around into the ceiling. Then he yells at the top of his lungs in English with an American accent, The party starts now! (laughs) Can you imagine that? (laughs) He sounds... (laughs) He sounds fun. (laughs) That's awful. Several people ran out the door, lots of employees scattered to various exit routes, and the gunman walked over to Kristen and Bo, 
and made Bo tie her up with rope, as well as two other female <laughs> bank employees who were nearby, a girl named Elizabeth Oldgren and Brigitte Lundbland. The gunman then put a radio on the counter and turned rock music on full blast. Oh, what? 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 I have been trying so hard to not laugh as soon as you said that she did. That Bo had to tie her up with rope. And I was like, oh. oh. <laughs> I'm just picturing myself being like, hey. This guy had a crush on. Oh, I hate, I hate that we're doing this. <laughs> Bo, I'm mortified. Bo, you're so look, look me in the I'm, look I mean, me in the eye when I mean, you do I'm it. Scared. <laughs> okay, this is serious. This is a ser- this is a serious thing that's happening. Yeah, it's serious, oh, Anna. Ugh, gross. Stop making it sexual. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to. It just happened. Okay. So the gunman put his radio on the counter, turned rock music on full blast. And then began patrolling the lobby, like pulling drawers out of desks, knocking things around. He was just making a big ass mess just to like establish his authority. His dominance. Yeah. He seemed very unstable. (laughs) (laughs) One moment he was laughing, another he's angrily yelling. And whenever he turned, he would carelessly point his machine gun. So he was this very scary ball of frantic nervous energy, pointing his gun at something before he's even turned to look at it. And his eyes gave the impression that he was on something. An employee had hit a silent alarm. So within moments, two police officers walk into the lobby, guns drawn, and the gunman shot at them and hit one in the hand. And he promptly ran out. And the other officer dove for cover in a nearby office where he found 12 employees hiding. The gunman asked an employee about all possible entrances and he went around locking all the doors he could find. The thing that alarmed the employees the most is that he didn't even ask for money or where the money was located. His intention was clearly something else. This had turned into a legitimate hostage situation in a matter of minutes, and he had taken control of the bank's entire lobby area. Now, obviously, because a police officer was shot, there's now a sea of police officers surrounding the property, all taking cover behind cars, trees, anything thick enough to stop a bullet. So because the bank was located in such a bustling little square, they needed to start to secure the area as much as possible, which meant emptying all the surrounding businesses. Word spread very quickly, and soon reporters and curious civilians started crowding around outside, wanting a glimpse of the action. Inside the bank, the gunman's demeanor went from bad to worse after he had shot the officer. He was now sweating profusely, so his makeup is streaking down his face, making him look that much scarier. The bank was located on the ground floor of a giant old six-story building. And the bank's main floor is mostly a lobby, Mm -hmm. but it's kind of got some other levels Mm -hmm. that are like, it's not a second story, but it's like a level. It's like an elevated level that overlooks the lobby. Okay. But the gunman himself was just in the literal lobby. So pretty soon the police come in and they commandeer like the upper level. Okay. That, so yes, the cops, I get what you're saying. So they they basically set up a command station An overlook, overlooking. Yes. <laughs> so like if they wanted, they could shoot each other. Mm-hmm. But there's so many hostages. There's people it's hiding. Too it's too risky. But they're essentially in the same room. But it's the room is like the size of an entire building. Yeah. Main floor kind of thing. After they had established that 
um, after that one police officer had been shot, another one had gone missing within the building. Sharpshooters began setting up on rooftops and balconies surrounding the bank, and eventually there was a sharpshooter designated and aimed at each door and window. Wow. The gunman seemed to be expecting this, so he walked around using one of the tied-up women as a human shield because he knew the police would never risk shooting him if mm-hmm. she was you know, in front of him. The gunman tells Bo, Kristen's work crush, to go up to the area that the police are gathered in and ask them to send down someone in charge because he's ready to make his demands. And if he doesn't obey orders, it'll be Bo's fault that his co-workers are shot. So Bo walks up the stairs to the landing that is now full of police and relays the message. The police tell him he needs to go back to the lobby and tell the gunman to put down his weapon before anyone agrees to talk to him. And Bo is like, uh, no, no, I will not, I'm not doing that. <laughs> and so he leaves the bank altogether. I just altogether. came from there. <laughs> I know. I want to go back. So he, 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 did, he relayed the message and then he left the bank. Yeah, smart. He was like, no, I'm not doing that. It's not my problem. The gunman continued to speak English, leading everyone to believe that was his native language. And English is a mandatory language taught in Swedish schools, but that doesn't mean everybody speaks it fluently. So they had to find a police officer named Morgan Rylander who spoke uh, very, I almost said ethical English. <laughs> very good English. Very good English. Yeah. Fluent. I meant fluent. fluent. Yeah, what the hell yeah, is yeah. ethical? Ethical English. <laughs> he approaches the lobby. He identifies himself. He asks the gunman for permission to come in and talk. Uh, he lifted his shirt and he showed that he wasn't armed. And so the gunman allowed him to come in. The gunman made his demands. He wanted the police to provide him with a ransom of three million Swedish crowns, a getaway car, and a promise to leave a clear path for escape. All things that aren't surprising in a bank robbery. But his third request was odd and extremely far-fetched. He demanded that the police bring him Sweden's most famous criminal, a man named Clark Olofsson. I thought you were going to be like, I want a girlfriend. <laughs> she has to be 5'4". <laughs> Clark Olofsson was a handsome, highly intelligent, and charismatic 26-year-old professional criminal who was currently serving a six-year prison sentence. Despite being a literal felon, he had recently made Sweden's list of the country's most influential people. He was considered a, quote, pop star criminal and had quite the female following. One reporter described him as a Scandinavian mixture of Jesse James and Warren Beatty. Come to mama. Oh, yum. <laughs> oh, yum, oh, yum. yum. <laughs> Yummy. He was also known for regularly escaping prison. By this time in his criminal career, he'd escaped a total of six times. And each time the tabloids sensationalized and followed the story as if he were a celebrity. During the robbery that he was currently serving time for, he and an accomplice had been interrupted by the police and the accomplice shot and killed one of them. Both Clark and the murdering accomplice escaped and Clark ended up leading police on a four-week manhunt that seemed straight out of a movie. He entertained the country and taunted authorities every step of the way. Clark had close friendships with several highly respected journalists who he would call and give exclusive interviews to about how the hunt was going, how he was feeling, and how much fun this all was. (laughs) One time, he got dressed up in a very nicely tailored suit. He went to the movie theater during the busiest time and made a big show of buying a ticket. He was immediately recognized, and just as the crowd started to become rowdy, he dipped out and hid in a building across the street, 
just so he could watch the police arrive and empty the building in a pathetic attempt to find him. Clark was born February 1st, 1947, so he's an Aquarius. He had grown up in and out of foster homes, and he very much became that tragic story of a child lost within the system. Mm -hmm. He said as an adult that his enemies were, quote, all those people who locked me in, the police, child protective services, guards, people, society, all of them. So from the age of eight, he mastered the art of criminal activity. And as he became older, that was how he'd made his living. During his current prison term, he maintained his celebrity status by conducting exclusive jailhouse press conferences, <laughs> like the kind that you see professional yeah. athletes do after a game. Making statements. He also started a very progressive newspaper for his fellow inmates that actually turned a very considerable profit, but it contained such harsh criticism of the prison system that authorities shut it down. So the fact that whoever was robbing this bank was now asking the police to deliver to him the most famous criminal in the country seemed outrageous, but also at the same time, like so on brand with all things Clark Olofsson. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, it, like, of course, someone of would course ask they that. Want that. Yeah. Police initially thought the idea was insane and flat out told the gunman, no, there's no way we are bringing a hardened criminal to you. <laughs> but by noon, the gunman <laughs> it had... It feels stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this is a trap. I feel like this is stupid <laughs> on our part. <laughs> but by noon, the gunman had become more and more erratic. When he'd first entered the bank, there had been roughly 40 employees inside. Several escaped, but most of them were hiding under desks or locked away in offices. However, every time the gunman found more employees hiding, he ordered them all to leave the bank entirely until finally he only had the three girls that were tied up, Kristen, Elizabeth, and Brigida. Outside the bank, there was now a barricade of a couple hundred police, countless sharpshooters, and a crowd of curious civilians that reached 2,000 people. Oh my God. Yeah. Sweden is known for being safe and idyllic. They have universal health care, universal child care, universal education, and so forth. So this place is known for being peaceful. So something like this, a crime so captivating, mm -hmm. like it's unheard of. They want to watch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. News cameras started rolling, and especially after Clark Olofsson's name came up, soon the entire country was tuning in and watching this robbery play out on live TV. The police provided water bottles to the gunman and the hostages, but the gunman angrily sent it back and said that he only drinks passion fruit flavored soda. <laughs> passion fruit or nothing. You know it. <laughs> or bust. <laughs> so the police gathered half of the three million crowns and delivered it to the gunman, whose identity they still didn't know, by the way. But after looking it over, the gunman actually sent it back. They were all freshly printed crisp bills, each one with a perfectly traceable consecutive serial number. So he sent it back and told them that he had a time limit to provide the full ransom in old crumpled up bills. And if they didn't deliver Clark to him in the same allotted time, he would start shooting the hostages. So the police decided they would connect the gunman on the phone with Clark and see if they could determine, one, who is the gunman, and two, if Clark was maybe in on this plan. Clark was shocked to get this phone call. <laughs> he told the police honestly that he wasn't expecting this. And as much as he wanted to take credit for coming up with a plan to escape prison where the guards literally escorted him out, he simply was not in on this plan. So he was as surprised as they were. The police were under no circumstances going to allow Clark into the bank. 
but they thought that if they could deliver him maybe to the sidewalk and then let the gunman see that he was outside, maybe that would calm him and sway him to surrender. Mm-hmm. So the cops were treating Clark sort of as an asset and they were suggesting, you know, maybe his sentence could be reduced if he helped save the lives of these hostages or maybe, mm-hmm. you know, it's just like they were suggesting all these possibilities for him. So conveniently, when police asked Clark if he knew who the gunman was, he said no. He wanted to see how this played out and if they if there really was a chance that it could work out in his favor. So he told them no, he had no idea. But he had known exactly who it was. Oh. It was a man named Jan Eric Olsen, a brief cellmate that Clark had had about a year before. Okay. Jan Eric Olsen, who actually just goes by the name Jan, was born April 16th, 1941. So he's an Aries. He was 32 at the time. He was handsome. And similar to Clark, he had also made a name for himself through his criminal career. He'd spent his adult life in and out of prison and was known as an expert safe cracker. His most recent experience that had gotten a lot of attention in the papers was how helpful he'd been to a couple that he had robbed. No. <laughs> An elderly couple had come home and interrupted Jan ransacking their house. The elderly man collapsed to the floor and his wife yelled at Jan to go into the medicine cabinet and find the heart medication. Oh. Jan followed the orders, helped the old man take his medicine. Then he finished ransacking the place and took off before police arrived. It's like a movie. Yeah. He was eventually caught and sent to prison where he ended up sharing a cell with none other than Clark Golovson. Clark remembers disliking Jan immediately because he thought he was an idiot. He hated the fact that every night Jan asked invasive questions about Clark's criminal history he was fascinated with Clark's record and always requested to hear another story before falling asleep, bank robbery ones in particular. So for Clark, he said it felt like he was telling a child fairy tale stories before bedtime. But for Jan, it felt like he and a famous outlaw were bunkmates at summer camp. This is the most like Aquarius Aries relationship ever. Yeah. Yes. It truly is. Yeah. So they had spent several months getting acquainted and exchanging stories about their past, but Clark never thought Jan was asking for inspiration. He thought they were just bored. Yeah. Jan was transferred to a different prison and soon was allowed a furlough. Sweden attempts to rehabilitate whenever possible, so certain inmates are allowed furloughs during their prison terms. This means they basically get a vacation for a day, sometimes more, and then they return to prison. So during a furlough where he was only supposed to be out for a day, Jan had taken the opportunity to escape and had been missing for a few weeks when he showed up at the bank on the morning of August 23rd. So Clark was eager to be of service, mostly because he was in solitary confinement when this phone call came in and inmates will do whatever they can to get out of that. So he arrives at the bank and two officers brought him up to the entrance. And then the two officers begin bickering. (laughs) One firmly believes Clark is not supposed to be let into the bank while the other is certain that he absolutely is supposed to be let into the bank because why else would they go through all the trouble of getting him here? And Clark knew the plan was not for him to go inside, just stand on the curb. But in true Clark fashion, he took advantage of their momentary distraction and he bolted into the building, joining the gunmen and the hostages. The women all later said that the moment Clark entered the bank, (laughs) there was an immediate shift in the air. (laughs) Sex appeal. (laughs) 
He strolled in with such calm yet powerful energy and immediately <sighs> diffused the situation. <laughs> we, we are all so predictable. <laughs> oh, just wait. Women. Oh, just, women. Oh, oh, oh. 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 It's, it's it's getting so much better. I love that. <laughs> so calm. <laughs> Up to that point, the women had been obviously very terrified. Yeah. They were certain this gunman would snap and kill them. But when the famous charismatic outlaw came in, cracking jokes, calmly assessing, diffusing, taking control, everyone, Jan included, let out a sigh of relief. He's hypnotized. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Kristen in particular was like, hold the flipping phone. <laughs> he looks as good in person as he does in his pictures. <laughs> Screw this bow character. He yeah. left me here. <laughs> Given that Clark had just come from outside, he had spent several hours traveling with the police to the bank. He had a much better grasp for how surrounded they were. So he suggested they all move to the large vault where they would be safer. There's only one way in, one way out, and there's no windows for snipers to point their guns at. As they're walking into the vault, Clark notices Kristen is struggling to walk with her ankles tied together. So without hesitation, he picks her up and carries her like a groom <laughs> carrying his bride across the threshold and then gently sets her down inside. I'd be done for. <laughs> I feel like I don't like being picked up. Stop. <laughs> he just drops you. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Stop it. You're bad. <laughs> He asks Kristen if she and the other girls have eaten any of the food that the police provided. And she told him not much because it's too difficult to eat with their wrists tied. And he goes, oh, let's take care of that then. He kneels down in front of her. And as he's gently untying her hands, he says softly, imagine. What? No, no. <laughs> sorry, shut up. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Imagine what? What? Say, tell me. Say yes, I am. <laughs> Imagining it, I am. He says softly, imagine meeting like this. And then he winks at her. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like, we did, we did just meet like this, not getting anything, <laughs> but we, but sir, we just did it. <laughs> he held her hands and looked her straight in the eye and he promised no one would get hurt and this would all end okay. Clark brought a telephone into the vault and began communicating with police over the phone. He didn't want any more in-person meetings in the lobby, even if the police showed that they were unarmed. Meanwhile, outside in the square, the police are furious because some dumb newbies let the convicted felon run into the middle of an act of robbery. So I'm sure someone lost their job that day. Yeah, of course. But the cops figured, you know, Clark was not known to harm people. He wasn't known to be violent. And he did initially seem inclined to help. Mm -hmm. So maybe not all is lost. Maybe they just need to shift gears and treat Clark like he's working for them on the inside. Police still did not know the real identity of the gunman, but they had pieced together some things. And they guessed that he was a different criminal altogether. Some guy named Kai. Kai also escaped prison recently and was on the run. He was known to be extremely violent and unpredictable. And so the police decide to contact Kai's family. They fly his 16-year-old brother, Dan, to Stockholm and send him into the lobby. They all know at this point that everyone had moved into the vault, but they need to be cautious because the vault door is cracked open and the machine gun has been placed in the crack, pointing towards the staircase that Dan has just walked down. Dan announces himself and begins to beg Kai to let everyone go to think of their mother and how much this hurts her. 
and then the gunman shoots at him from the vault, hitting the ground next to Dan's feet. So Dan turns and bolts out of the lobby back to the police. He's shaken beyond belief. Not only was this already a very nerve-wracking situation, but he had no idea that his own brother was capable of shooting a gun at him. Yeah. And the police tried convincing him to go back and try again. And Dan refused, obviously. Right at that moment where they're arguing about it, he doesn't want to go back down. The phone reserved for the phone calls to the vault rang. And the police made Dan answer it because they were assuming it was his brother, Kai. So he picks up. And after speaking for a moment, Dan angrily (laughs) slams the phone down and told the police, you got the wrong fucking guy. And then he just storms out of the building. (laughs) From Kristen's perspective, the first time she began to question the police was this incident with Dan. By then, she knew the gunman's name. And after Clark's arrival, she was surprised by how much more calm and reasonable the gunman had become. Jan had gotten really angry when he realized that the police had sent this teenager in to negotiate, but he didn't actually want to hurt him. Yeah. He intentionally aimed the bullet to land near his feet, and then he allowed Dan to run away without harm. But the fact that the police even thought sending a teenager into the midst of a bank robbery was logical and worse that they tried sending him back in after being shot at. I love the fact that the criminals are like, it was so irresponsible for you guys to send a kid in and possibly get harmed. And they're literally taking people hostage. (laughs) I know. (laughs) It's so hypocritical and hilarious. Well, we're talking about Kristen. Oh, I thought you meant the gunman. That allowed him to get away and thought it was so irresponsible. I misunderstood. Yeah, because he just wanted him to leave. So he just shot it knowing he would run away. I got it now. Kristen began to wonder if the police were operating from a place that valued preserving life first and foremost. Because if they're willing to send in some kid back into the literal line of fire, then how could the hostages feel like their lives mattered to authorities? After everyone was settled into the vault, Clark began patrolling the bank's lobby and offices and closets. He wanted to verify for himself that no one else was inside. He opened a door and jumped back startled when he saw a man crouching down in a closet. It was a 24-year-old bank employee named Sven Safstrom. This was Sven's first day in his new bank job. Oh, sweet Sven. (laughs) (laughs) And that morning, he had been in a supply closet looking for an envelope when he heard gunfire in the lobby and a man yelling at everyone to get down. So he quietly closed the closet door. It's (laughs) not my problem. (laughs) Yeah, he's like, decided to stay put, hoping that if he stayed out of the way, he wouldn't be hurt and could just wait until the police arrived. Smart. But he'd been in there for... But he'd been in there for almost seven hours by the time Clark found him. So he was just in there like, when are they coming? (laughs) When are they coming? I thought this would be wrapped up by now. Clark acted as though he had just run into an old friend. He was like, what the hell? You don't need to just stand in here. Come with me. You must be so hungry. And that is how Sven became the fourth hostage, bringing the group in the vault to a total of six people. Jan called the cops and requested that in addition to providing $3 million in crumpled bills, a fast getaway car, and clear passage, he's now insisting that he and Clark take Elizabeth and Kristen with them when they make their getaway. He vows they will be unharmed, they just need the girls as an insurance policy, and once they feel they're far enough away, they'll drop the girls in a safe spot where they can make their way home. The reason that they were asking about Kristen and Elizabeth specifically is that both of those girls were young and single. 
Brigida was 34 and married with two small children. So their logic was that they didn't want to keep her away from her family any longer than necessary. And for whatever reason, they didn't think escaping with a male hostage would work to their advantage. And the police said, no, we're not going to let you leave with two hostages. With the two hot single girls. (laughs) That's not fair. (laughs) So the two sides went back and forth, arguing and arguing, until finally Kristen suggested she speak to the police herself. She wanted to explain that she and Elizabeth had agreed to join the two men on their escape route, and they both fully trusted that Jan and Clark would not hurt them. So what was the harm in allowing the girls to go with them for a few miles? Mm -hmm. When she got the hostage negotiator on the phone, a police psychiatrist named Dr. Nils Beirut, she was shocked when he cut her off and said, we only communicate with Clark, and then hung up on her. She burst into frustrated tears and told Clark what happened. And he suggested that he set up a phone interview with a journalist friend of his. That way she could get the word out to the public about the way the police were treating the hostages. Oh, he's so smooth. He's like, babe, (laughs) I don't, I'll never let anyone cut you off ever again. (laughs) I want your voice heard. Yeah, seriously. (laughs) Oh man, kryptonite. He gently reminded her that the police didn't hesitate to send in an innocent kid to talk to an armed criminal and tried sending him back in after he was shot at. So she needed to accept that she couldn't trust the police to concern themselves with her well-being. Clark later said that he knew he was manipulating the hostages, but he had a valid reason to. Obviously, he and Jan never trusted the police, but even they were surprised at how little the authorities seemed to care about the hostages. They knew out of everyone in the vault, police wouldn't hesitate to shoot and kill the two of them. That's what made the hostages so valuable. However, if Dr. Beirut and the police were dismissive and uninterested in even hearing requests from the hostages themselves, then it means everyone in the vault is in serious danger. So Clark chose to manipulate the hostages as a way to ensure that they all made it out alive. If everyone trusted him and followed his lead, he believed everything would end peacefully. Because this he doesn't want to die either. Yeah, I buy all of this. So Kristen gets on the phone with a reporter and she rakes the police and Dr. Beirut over the coals. She also explains that they've been listening on Jan's radio how the robbery is being covered in the news and she resents the way that she and the other hostages have been portrayed. She said they're just sensationalizing this by suggesting that she and the others are huddled in the corner crying. She said they're actually all getting along really well. (laughs) We're actually having fun. Write that down. (laughs) Getting acquainted with one another and that all of the hostages feel safe with Clark and Jan. It's the police that they're beginning to fear. The reporter was shocked to hear this and said that from the outside looking in, it seems like Kristen is in a very desperate situation. And Kristen laughed and said, no, we've been playing tic-tac-toe. It can hardly be all that desperate, right? I'm going to admit that I have put you and I in this vault with them. Oh, yeah. Like, it's like we're watching Sex in the City. I'm mm-hmm. like, I'm her and she's you. Yeah. This is you and I in the vault. Yes. <laughs> yes. She told the reporter it was absolutely ridiculous that the authorities had the audacity to play with their lives, but refused to speak to her, the one who will die if anything goes wrong. Mm-hmm. And finally, she told the reporter that she and Elizabeth want to help Jan and Clark make their getaway safely. <laughs> and the reporter is like, Okay, but like how far would they take you before they deemed it a safe place to drop you off? And Kristen just shrugged it off and said that she and Elizabeth trusted the boys completely. That's what she called them. And that quote, 
I could really see us going around the whole world with them. We'll work out the details later. If it's forever, it's forever. (laughs) If it's a lifetime, it's a lifetime. I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) So this interview made headlines for so many reasons. For one, it was wild to even get an exclusive interview with a current hostage, Mm -hmm. but wilder still that she was so openly critical of authorities, yet so warm towards her captors and even requesting to go away with them. Clark got back on the phone with the police and requested more food and more drink and as many pillows and blankets as possible. It was obvious to everyone that as long as the police forbid the girls from escaping with the criminals, then everyone needed to get comfortable because they were going to be there for a while. Clark repeatedly told the police it was in everyone's best interest if they tried to meet as many of Jan's demands as possible because he was unpredictable and threatening to shoot everyone, and he had begun to work on building a bomb, but the police still didn't comply. At one point, Clark called back and requested tampons. He said one of the girls had started menstruating and he wanted to make sure that she had what she needed, and all six people in the vault heard the police laugh in response. Well, I mean, also like playing devil's advocate, Kristen coming on the or talking to the journalist and being like, we hate the police. They suck. Yeah. Doesn't exactly make them want to take care of the situation more. Yeah. Um, But I'm also picturing like what if our parents like read that newspaper headline and they're like, oh, my God, (laughs) just shut your mouth. Shut up, you guys. (laughs) It's not all about the men. (laughs) So after this. Clark became so fed up, he told them that if they're not going to allow everyone's safe passage out of here, then he wants to be taken back to his prison cell. He was under the impression that they had allowed him to come here as a way to save everyone's lives, but now they're rejecting that option, so Clark no longer has a reason to be here, and he has no interest in dying. And that shut the police up, and soon all of the provisions that he had requested were left outside the vault door. The bathrooms were located outside of the vault, up the stairs, and past the police who had commandeered that upper level of the lobby. So anytime one of the girls needed to use the bathroom, they had to walk past a huge group of police officers, but they always returned to the vault. Jan had threatened to hurt the other hostages if they did not return from the bathroom, and initially this was the reason each hostage always came back. But after time went on and they started to grow weary of the police, the girls had no desire to leave anyways. So they would either ignore the police as they walked by, or if it was Kristen, she would give them dirty looks. (laughs) (laughs) On their first night sleeping in the vault, everyone went into separate corners and tried to get comfortable, except for Kristen and Clark, who slept next to each other. Love it. They're cold. (laughs) The following day, several quiet hours went by, and the police chief called into the vault and said he wanted to see the hostages in person to verify that they were okay. And Clark agreed. So he walked each hostage out one by one and let the police chief get a good look before sending them back inside. The chief later told his colleagues that the hostages all seemed fine physically speaking, but he was astonished at their demeanor. Each one seemed so comfortable, almost intimate towards the captors, yet they were cold and dismissive towards him, the guy who wants to make sure that they're okay. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. This was baffling and unlike anything he had experienced before. It just made no sense at all. So negotiations have sort of come to a standstill. The captors are insisting that the only way to make sure everyone makes it out alive would be to allow the two hostages to escape with them. But the police won't even entertain this idea. 
So Jan and Clark are realizing they need to bypass the police chief. They need to speak to the man in charge to get what they want. So they get the prime minister on the phone. He too refused to allow the criminal safe passage with the hostages. So finally, Kristen is like, okay, let me talk to him. Maybe he'll listen to me. She ends up talking to him for an hour. She relays many of the same things that she had said to the reporter, and she begged him to allow she and Elizabeth to go with them. But she was furious to learn that the prime minister was not on board with this. He didn't care what the hostages wanted. He said under no circumstances would this request be granted. Kristen felt that she, as the hostage, was within her right to request that the captors receive whatever they've demanded because her life was the one that was on the line. But the prime minister didn't agree and he was like, we need to set an example here. We can't let the country see that criminals can ask to leave the crime scene with their victims and be granted that. You can't negotiate with terrorists sort of thing. Kristen explained that she was fearful of the police and worried that there was a chance they would make a dumb decision and she or the other hostages might die in the crossfire. So her logic was like, well, if my life is already at risk, then why not let it be at risk outdoors, speeding off into the sunset in a fast Mustang with Clark? With my cleavage bearing outfit. (laughs) (laughs) And you know what he said in response to that? The prime minister asked, wouldn't it feel good to die on your post? As if working at the bank and dying on the job was somehow honorable. This isn't like war where you get a purple heart. So Kristen hung up on him. Fair. What an idiot. How does he have that job? He later denied ever saying that, but everyone inside the vault heard the exchange. And obviously every call was being recorded by the police. So this should have been in this call's transcript. However... There's one section of this transcript that has been mysteriously redacted and no one has ever been able to explain why. This back and forth went on for three full days. The police initially approached the situation using a forced exhaustion strategy, which forces the captors to become exhausted and weak, therefore easier to overpower. And then some genius was like, then why are you delivering steaks and ice cream and beer and letting them sleep at night? Mm -hmm. Like they were really doing that. Yeah. So the police are like, oh, shit, good point. Fair. So they decide the next best thing is to try locking them all in the vault and not provide any more sustenance, and maybe that'll do the trick. So early on the morning of the third day, while the vault's occupants were all asleep, police quietly crept up to the vault door and closed it, locking everyone inside. Clark, Jan, and the hostages all woke up to the sound and start screaming and banging on the door, demanding it to be open again. And the authorities made several careless mistakes during this ordeal, but locking four hostages with two armed criminals into a cement vault with no way out had to be their absolute dumbest decision. Absolutely. And even though the four hostages by this time had grown very comfortable and trusting of Jan and Clark, This decision spoke volumes to them about how little value the police put on their lives. So the hostages have officially lost trust in the authorities and now feel like their only chance of survival is to follow Clark's lead. In that earlier incident where the police chief realized the hostages seemed to be more comfortable with the captors, Dr. Beirut came up with this idea that they thought might help snap the hostages out of the captor's influence. So he contacted family members of the hostages and asked them to call in and speak to their loved ones in the vault. Kristen said she was sleeping when her mother called and Jan answered and was like, oh, she's sleeping. Should I wake her? And her mom's like, please. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) 
Kristen said this was one more thing that turned her against the police. She said it felt extremely reckless to do this because they couldn't have predicted how any of the hostages would react to something like this. Like, what if she had gotten really emotional and did something to endanger herself or her fellow hostages? Like, you just don't know how they're going to respond to something like that. She's so critical. Yeah. (laughs) She has, like, something to say about everything. Yeah, I need to know what her birthday is. I didn't even look. I should try to find it. Yeah, we should figure it out. She said she learned later that the police had instructed her parents to be very calm to act casual and not say or do anything to upset her. So her parents asked her a ton of mundane questions. Like her dad was like, so are you, you know, are you guys playing poker in there? Are you making a lot of money? Like stuff like that. Like they were just kind of making jokes. And she she said that made the whole thing all that much weirder. weirder. Yeah, it was just like, this was so irresponsible. It'd be like my mom being like, so what are you wearing? Yeah. Did Bo like the joke that you told him today? And... Did you say it the way we practiced it? (laughs) Did you embarrass yourself? Mom, I dropped to the floor. It was so embarrassing. (laughs) So after locking everyone in the vault, police inserted multiple small microphones into the vault's ventilation system. That way they could listen in on the conversations. And what they heard was remarkable and nothing like what they'd expected. All six individuals chatted in a comfortable and intimate manner as though they were all close friends who were catching up. They regularly spoke of philosophy, their hopes and dreams, ambitions for themselves, as well as the mundane. The police didn't hear anything violent, and all of them seemed to be quite at ease given the circumstances. This is like a really, like an ideal first date. Yeah. You know? (laughs) The conversation range, the connection, the chemistry. (laughs) This is ideal. The hostages were very curious about life in prison, while the criminals were very curious about what it was like for the hostages to work in such close proximity to so much money day after day. Everyone in the vault agreed that it seemed like the prime minister was less interested in preserving life and more interested in capturing these two criminals because it would probably result in increasing his votes in the upcoming election. Mm-hmm. It wasn't all like happy, though. Um, the police could hear that Brigida cried pretty often and talked about how much she missed her kids. And Elizabeth had had this big special party that she was throwing that weekend. And she was going to see all these people she was really close to. And and this incident went well into the weekend. Mm -hmm. And so they could hear Jan (laughs) trying to reassure her there's going to be more parties in the future. And then reassure Brigida that he also has two kids and he really misses them also. And we're all going to see them again. You know, they were comforted by their captors. After about a day of sitting in the vault and still being at a dead end with negotiations, the occupants are trying to stay calm and think about what to do now when suddenly they hear the most ear-splitting noise. The police were on the floor above the vault, drilling through several feet of cement. And obviously, you know, the entire vault is one thick chunk of cement so as they're drilling in like the entire space that they're in is just violently yeah. vibrating and the noise is screeching you, yeah you can't yeah. escape it there, there's nothing it's just a jackhammer going through so many feet of cement it also feels really dangerous everyone inside said the sound was deafening it was so unbearable and everything was shaking their brains were shaking like everything was yeah. just vibrating violently Jan and Clark guessed that the cops were making holes in the ceiling with the intention of throwing tear gas inside. That way everyone would be incapacitated for a few minutes. 
They explained to the hostages that staying in a confined space filled with tear gas for longer than 15 minutes can result in serious brain damage. So if this is really what the police plan to do, they're all in very serious danger if the vault door doesn't open quickly. So obviously, everyone in the vault started yelling in protest. They called the authorities repeatedly, begging them to stop the drilling because it was so deafening. Mm -hmm. And then everything went black. The drill had hit some wiring, which cut the power inside of the vault. It was now darker than dark. They couldn't see a single thing. And then the drilling stopped for a while. It turned out the drill had overheated after making its first hole in the ceiling. So then after that, the police had to regularly pour water in as they drilled to keep it cool, which meant the vault began to flood. Kristen at one point started sobbing and screaming, please stop, please stop the drilling. And even though the police knew it was the drilling she was referencing, they spread rumors in the media that she was actually begging one of the captors not to rape her again. When in reality, all vault occupants stated Kristen was yelling about the unbearable noise of the drill and Clark was holding her hand and comforting her. The vault occupants have now been in a cold, jet black room with no food, no water, listening to this nonstop deafening noise for two days. Oh my God. The police have made several holes in the ceiling, so little slivers of light come through the holes, like just a little bit. But in order to keep the upper hand, the police would cover the holes so the vault still was dark. So they're just torturing these pe- these innocent people. Yep. And all the debris, all the cement is just falling into the vault. And flooding. Yeah. The police don't give a shit if a fat chunk of cement lands on anybody. And kills somebody. They, I don't know if they realize this, but they could unlock the vault. Um, Yeah, but they had (laughs) explosives and guns and knives inside. And so they they wanted to get Yant and Clark to the point where they agreed to not do anything, whether it was, you know, maybe allowing the cops to pull their guns up from holes or anything. They're they're just trying to let me clarify this. Sweden was not nobody at that time had any experience with hostage negotiation at all. Okay, It's clear. It's very clear that they (laughs) this was. Literally the first time. They did they not handle it. never experienced it before. Obviously, now this kind of thing is standard in law enforcement, but it yeah. not, not at sure the time. I'm sure they've had some meetings since. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. And then I don't really know what the purpose of this was, but at one point, the police decide to lower a camera into the vault through one of the holes, and they take a photo, I guess, to just see, to to be little peeping Toms yeah. and see what they're, what are you doing? what they're doing down there. And the photo that they got ended up becoming the most well-known photo associated with this story. Kristen and Jan are not in the photo, but it does show Elizabeth and Brigitte sitting side by side on chairs and Sven is on the floor between them and Clark is standing nearby. They had been in total darkness, but when they heard a noise, they had all looked towards it just as the flash went off on the camera. Mm-hmm. So now that he sees that the cops are capable of lowering stuff into the vault, Clark called and requested that they deliver food and water through the holes. Everyone was starving and they were all so thirsty that they had resorted to scooping water up off the floor and trying to drink it. All the dirty water they've been standing in full of debris and cement from the drill. They've also been going to the bathroom in there Yep, for days. Yep. That's sickening. So the police do it. They send food and water down and a bucket for everyone to share as a toilet. Thanks. And they also sent a lamp. Jan plugged it in and noticed something weird protruding from the side, so he kind of tugged on it for a minute, and then the phone promptly rang. The police were on the line, and they told him, don't play with the microphone and the lamp. Those are very expensive. (laughs) 
<laughs> Unless you plan on compensating. <laughs> yeah. So Clark carefully portioned out the food so that everyone had enough to eat. Reporters had been calling this whole ordeal the bank drama. And with every hour that went by, the more captivated the country became. The way that it's described by people who look back on it, it sort of reminds me of O.J. Simpson's Bronco mm-hmm. Chase. That was like such a high stakes, captivating thing to watch unfold on live TV, knowing it could turn deadly at any moment. Everyone stopped what they were doing to watch it. And this bank drama was just like that, except on a larger scale because of how long it went on. Yeah. Uh, David King, the, the author of the book that I got all this information from, he said, quote, the bank drama was compared to a play, an action film and a serialized television show. It would later be billed as one of the first news soap operas in reality television programs where, unlike the latter, the unscripted action could at any moment come to an abrupt violent end. Even though the police are the ones who came up with the idea to lock the vault and drill the holes in the ceiling, that was as far as they had thought. So now they're like, wait, how do we get them all out? So they turn to the public. They ask members of the public to call in and give suggestions on how to smoke out the criminals. And let me tell you, the good people of Sweden did not disappoint. It's like it's like phone a friend on who wants to be a millionaire. I know. One caller suggested the police could drop hundreds of soccer balls through the drilled holes, filling the vault and making it impossible for the robbers to move. That's such a um, gentle approach. That's right. Another caller suggested releasing an army of ants or a horde of black rats or a swarm of hornets. In the caller's mind, somehow these pests would zero in on just the criminals and spare the hostages. That's how animals work, so it makes sense. (laughs) A 49-year-old woman called in and offered to enter the vault to physically overpower Jan. She said she was much larger and that it would be very easy for her to do. Just sit on him. It's fine. (laughs) Oh, sweet woman. One caller suggested hiring a hypnotist who didn't need to look at someone to hypnotize them and... They could speak to Jan over the phone and control him. These answers make me feel so confident about my own intelligence. (laughs) One caller suggested bringing in a giant magnet so large that it would pull the guns away from the robbers, leaving them defenseless. Another caller suggested a choir should sing religious music to appeal to the softer side of the captors. God will save them. One caller suggested the police mop the lobby floor with soapy water so as soon as the robbers emerged from the vault, they'd fall and be unable to get up. Put banana peels all over the floor. (laughs) One caller suggested throwing a flamethrower through the hole and aiming it at just the robbers. Another caller said pouring a massive amount of dried yellow peas through the holes would fill the room in what felt like quicksand. Another caller suggested spraying the robbers with sugar water. And finally, another one suggested sending a skunk into the vault, or if that didn't work, his mother-in-law, who he said could clear a room in a matter of minutes. Same, same, but different. Finds a way to insult his mother-in-law, even when she's not there. I know. (laughs) That's so epic. He's like, please put my name after this one. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. The police didn't end up taking any of these like Home Alone inspired offers. They're like, these are good. These are good. Yeah. And they settle on throwing tear gas into the vault, just as Ian and Clark feared that they would. They had come up with a plan to throw the gas in, open the vault, apprehend the criminals, rescue the hostages, all in under 15 minutes to avoid brain damage. At 9.03 p.m. on the sixth day of this hostage situation, 
Police lifted the covers on all of the holes in the ceiling and dropped several canisters of tear gas inside. Everyone began screaming and choking. They fell to the ground, trying to push their faces into the water on the floor. Their eyes burned, they gasped for air, and then they're blinded by the large spotlight coming through the now open vault door. They writhed in pain and panic, trying to see through all of the smoke. They all tried to lay as flat on the floor as possible, wondering if they were all about to die like sitting ducks. The police didn't enter the vault, though. Instead, they shouted at the occupants to come out, and they wanted Jan and Clark out last. But everyone knew this was because if they could confirm all the hostages were safely away, then the police could easily just shoot up the vault, killing the two men in one spot. Mm Mm-hmm. All four hostages refused and said that they would instead walk out together as a group, literally shielding Jan and Clark with their bodies. So the cops are like, okay, fine, whatever, just come out. And then they watched in shock as all six people in the vault stood in the doorway, hugging and kissing and promising to keep in touch with one another. Oh my God. (laughs) This has been so weird, but so nice. (laughs) I'm surprised at how much I enjoyed this. I love that so much. It's like breakfast club. And the thing is, the police, again, just to prove that they really didn't care about preserving any life, Mm -hmm. they argued with the occupants in the vault for 30 minutes. That means they were all within that confined space for 30 minutes. And the possibility of brain damage. And they say it was 15. 15. Great. Yeah. The more important thing is just, you know, open the door and let everyone run out. You chose to to throw gas in there. You can't mm-hmm. just then argue so that you can try to kill someone. Yeah. They were inside of this bank for six days straight and spent a total of 131 hours together. Jan and Clark were apprehended and handcuffed, and all four hostages were put onto stretchers and placed in individual ambulances. There's a video of Kristen on her stretcher refusing to lay flat like the paramedics told her to. <laughs> she's you. Yeah. I thought she was me, but she's you. No, she me. <laughs> you can see her sitting upright very defiantly. Like yeah. her back is straight. It's like Khaleesi. I am not relaxing. Yeah. <laughs> she's looking around for Clark and then witnesses stated that when she saw him a few feet away, she yelled, I will see you again, Clark. <sighs> <laughs> Don't forget me, please. (laughs) I won't forget you. When Clark arrived to the hospital, the staff told him they already had over 70 letters and cards addressed to him from admiring women around the country. We're so predictable. The hostages were hospitalized for 10 days where they were interviewed and evaluated by various professionals. Kristen said that she was so furious with authorities by the end of this ordeal that she initially refused to speak to police. But eventually, when she had to, she laid into them, criticizing every decision they'd made since this (laughs) began. (laughs) She insisted that Jan and Clark didn't hurt any of them and that she felt much safer at their mercy rather than the authorities. Then she promptly ended the conversation and told them that when they see Clark, she'd like them to pass along a hug and a kiss from her. (laughs) Make it a long kiss. (laughs) Make it a Frenchie. Make it a good one. The lip kind. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, the mental health professionals had a field day with this situation. This was absolutely baffling to have not one, but all four hostages develop such strong protective feelings towards their captors. And further still, aggression and severe criticism towards the police who were on the outside trying to save them. 
The police psychiatrist, uh, Dr. Beirut, interviewed the hostages and began formulating an explanation for all of this. He invented the term Stockholm Syndrome and explained to reporters that this is a scenario in which the captors brainwash their captives into a feeling of intimacy, empathy, and positive feelings, and that it arises after prolonged periods of time together under duress. The problem with this explanation was... Dr. Beirut didn't actually interview the hostages because Kristen, Brigida, and Elizabeth refused to speak to him. Not only were they distrustful of everyone of authority at the time, but it turned out that Dr. Beirut had been the one calling all the shots during the hostage situation. So he was at the very top of the list of the people who had endangered their lives. Instead of hearing her, hearing her fears in the bank, and hearing the criticism she had of his choices... Dr. Beirut brushed it off and created this term Stockholm Syndrome, a syndrome that explains the connection of weak-willed women in captive-like relationships with strong men. And the icing on the cake with this? Dr. Beirut did not even interview Sven. He only attempted to speak to the female hostages and only expressed interest in understanding their actions. Because we're weak. Mm -hmm. The media accepted this explanation and ran with it. And almost 50 years later people, and I include myself with this because this was news to me also, still believe that Stockholm Syndrome is a real and valid condition. So Jan and Clark's criminal trials began in January of 1974. Jan received 10 years in prison on top of the four years that he had been serving at the time of the robbery. Clark, of course, decided to put on a show. He fired his attorney and represented himself. I'm always judgmental. I normally don't like that. I normally don't like that, but with him, I'm like, yeah, you should. You should. You, you, you would probably do way better. You're smarter than everybody <laughs> yeah. is. So. He argued that he did nothing wrong. He was in prison, in solitary confinement, no less, minding his damn business when the police plucked him out and dropped him smack dab in the middle of a televised bank robbery. Yeah, why is he on trial? So he argues, how on earth can he be charged with anything related to this crime? He was told that his role was to help defuse the situation and hopefully save lives. And he did what was asked of him. And he did what was asked of him. Yeah. <laughs> he did it. <laughs> Clark did it. And he did it. His defense didn't work, though, and Clark was convicted of being an accessory to robbery. But then he successfully represented himself in an appeal and he walked away from this crime a free man. Good. I mean, that, I mean, does he deservedly? I, yeah, I agree. 100%. The hostages all refused to testify against their captors. And when they were forced to say anything on the record, they lied to protect Jan and Clark. Kristen told authorities she didn't believe Clark deserved to be punished and said, quote, had I been able to decide, I would have given him a medal. Had I decided he would be my husband lawfully <laughs> right now <laughs> so credit bank provided all four employees three months paid vacation extended sick leave and a stipend of ten thousand crowns brigida was the first to visit clark after he was sent back to prison she worked at the bank for 30 more years and today lives in stockholm with her family she says this ordeal actually made her a much stronger person and remember the day that the robbery happened was sven's, sven's first day yes he ended up working at that bank for 38 years. He's now president of the bank. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. He's the same exact job. <laughs> <laughs> Hiding in closets. <laughs> Not long after this ordeal, he visited Jan in prison and he gifted him a chess set. And a few years after that, he saw Clark holding court at a VIP table in a nightclub. Of course. Clark invited him to join 
They partied together, and when Clark's night ended, he gave the table to Sven and his friends. Sven says he feels no ill will towards Jan or Clark, but he does have many lingering questions regarding the authorities' choices that still bother him to this day. Mm-hmm. Despite working at the same bank, Elizabeth and Kristen had barely known each other before this, but they emerged from the vault as lifelong best friends. Elizabeth quit her job right away, and she moved back in with her parents to start the long process of healing and learning how this would shape her as a person, because she was the youngest one. She was 20 years old. Yeah, baby. She ended up becoming a registered nurse and eventually stopped giving interviews about this whole ordeal as a way to truly move past this. Years later, Elizabeth accused the doctors who had treated her after the release of attempting to brainwash her into denying that she felt any positive feelings towards her captors, which I believe. But when you consider what we're talking about, this uh, Stockholm syndrome, it's like, oh, okay. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) Kristen returned to work, but found it too difficult to be back in that building. So she also quit her job. For several years, Kristen dealt with crippling anxiety and PTSD. She's never been a fan of the term Stockholm syndrome and to this day finds it extremely offensive. But all of the trauma created a curiosity in her to better understand the whole ordeal. And eventually, she became a licensed psychologist and now has a successful family therapy practice in Stockholm. She says that she, quote, aims to listen to those whom no one listens and respect those whom no one respects. Dignities that she feels the police denied her during the bank robbery. Clark finished serving the sentence he had been in the midst of uh, when the robbery happened. And then went on to continue living his life the way he always had, committing crimes for a living. Oh, that's like a baller. Smooth, (laughs) smooth, charming. He escaped prison in 1975, robbed a bank in Copenhagen, and then continued to the French Riviera where he purchased a sailboat and he lived on it and sailed around the Mediterranean for seven months. My God, he's intoxicating. Oh, just wait. (laughs) That same year, while still being pursued by police for his escape, Clark committed the largest single-person bank robbery in Swedish history, making off with 930,000 crowns. He was eventually caught while he was partying it up in a hotel bar and was sent back to prison. But that prison stint was short-lived. He was only there for a short time before a group of his friends, all carrying machine guns, drove a massive armored truck through three gates of the prison, breaking Clark out for yet another escape. For the next 40 years, he was in and out of prison. Sometimes he was out because he completed his sentence, and other times it was from his latest escape. Other times it was a furlough. Once during an escape, he met a beautiful woman at a train station in Germany, and she promptly agreed to marry. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And that's my grandmother. (laughs) (laughs) She turned out to come from a family with a lot of money. She was the daughter of a very wealthy businessman. So now Clark was enjoying wealth in a manner that was actually legal. He and his wife used money from uh, her family, as well as the money that he still had from his robbery to invest, resulting in a legal, lucrative stream of income. But he still continued to be arrested for various crimes, many of which he claims are framing because... He feels like the authorities in Sweden are just out to get him. Eh, that's possible. Which is possible. But then he also admits that he does do some illegal things too. So he seems honest to me. So I'm going to just take his word. I think that they're just like pissed. I, I think I just like believe everything. I think that the police are petty. So <laughs> I don't know. In August of 2018, Clark was released from his most recent stint in prison and is now living in Sweden. When the writer David King reached out to him for his book, 
Clark told him over the phone through puffs of his cigar and sips of whiskey. Yeah, come to Sweden. I'll tell you whatever the fuck you want to know. How old is he now? Oh, he's old now. I, am, I he know he's born, so cool still, even in 2018. I know. He was born in the 40s. Oh, okay. So math. <laughs> yeah. So someone else do the math. Yeah. 80, uh, 80s? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. When asked what his thoughts are on that ordeal with the perspective of 45 years, Clark said, quote, fuck, it was very fun. No regrets. Oh my God, I love it. So for Jan, during his prison sentence, he married a pen pal, one of those women who Mm -hmm. write into prisoners. Yeah. And despite the public criticism, many police officers, including the chief of police who oversaw the entire robbery, all attended the wedding. Many people sent letters to the Minister of Justice complaining about authorities socializing with a known criminal. And the Minister of Justice responded by saying, well, had I been invited, I would have gone to the wedding too. What is ha- this is this is a movie. I know. Is this a movie? No. Like will it be one? <laughs> will it be one? Has it been one? Um I saw that there was like a made for TV one with Ethan Hawke oh, but it no, had no, terrible no. reviews. This is giving me like Ocean's 11. Like I, know. I need some I need George Clooney. What's so funny though is that if you saw this in a movie, it wouldn't be a good movie. It'd because, be over the top. Because it's like it's, everything about this isn't real. So the only <sighs> way that a movie about it is good is because it's a true story. That's so true. So uh, after getting out of prison, Jan was determined to live a quiet and honest life, and that he did. Over the years, he's worked as a cabinet maker. Uh, He taught judo for a while. He was breeding pigs, fixing up and selling vintage cars. Eventually, he and his wife divorced, and he remarried and moved to Thailand for several years, where he owned a grocery store, operated his own farm, and became a Buddhist. Eventually, he moved back to Sweden and now runs a very successful used car dealership. He says that if he could go back, he would have never started a life of crime and he regrets the suffering that he caused the hostages. Jan became a proud father of nine children, (laughs) all of them living very different lives. One is a cop, one is a lawyer, and three are in a well-known biker gang. I love that. (laughs) Yeah. Jan has publicly said that he walked away from this robbery without a dime. However, after the robbery was over, police discovered there was today's equivalent of $60,000 missing from the vault. Obviously, all six people had been thoroughly examined and treated and evaluated for several days after this. So how any of them smuggled the money out is a mystery. But it turns out before leaving the vault, Clark grabbed stacks of cash, rolled them up small and shoved them up his ass using butter from the sandwiches (gasps) that the police provided. Oh, it's so dirty. After he went back to prison, he discreetly removed the money and cleaned each individual bill. He then smuggled all of the money out of prison into his family without authorities ever finding out. All the mail coming in and out of prison is checked by police. And when an envelope has been cleared, they put a stamp on it saying it's already been inspected. Somehow, Clark got his hands on an envelope that had already had this stamp so when he mailed the money to his family, no one even looked inside. He had $60,000 worth of dollars in his butt? <laughs> yes. How? I know. I don't know. That's like 600 hundred. I don't know. Right? I can't I do have math. No, I have no idea. Buttery bills. <laughs> <laughs> buttery buttery <laughs> bills in the, in the babe's butt. That's alliteration. <laughs> buttery bills in the babe's butt i love it <laughs> yeah i just i didn't even, cra- I didn't even practice that. 
That's just my creative genius. You might genius think that flowing. I already thought of that yesterday, but I thought of it just now. Clark didn't admit any of that for 45 years, and he doesn't care that Jan didn't get any of the money. He was asked if he had any guilt about Jan going to prison for this robbery when Clark didn't. And Clark's response was, quote, no, 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 no. I never feel bad when I'm not in prison. <laughs> That's fair. And then he said, um, in all seriousness, I don't feel guilty at all about it because he used me and he tried to use me even then. He's a really shitty ass. <laughs> oh, man. Good one-liners. I'm so curious. Um, did anything ever happen with, uh, is it Kirsten or Kristen? Kristen. Kristen and Clark. Not that I'm jealous. I'm just wondering. Yeah. <laughs> but like, tell me. But like, what happened? <laughs> um, yes. Afterwards? Uh-huh. They like met yeah. up. Just this wait. is so Ocean's Eleven. I know. So Clark said that he had, he took to Kristen, or Kiki, as he calls her. <laughs> oh no, I, K-baby. <laughs> K-honey. <laughs> he says that he took to Kiki in the bank immediately. Oh. He liked that she was a spitfire who was willing to call the prime minister and lay into him. He liked that she didn't hold back, that it never seemed to even occur to her to hold back, and that she always spoke her mind. Yeah. Kristen said that she liked Clark in the vault, but she fell in love with him years later. Yeah. A year after the robbery, they started exchanging letters while he was in prison, and whenever he was out on furlough or escaped, <laughs> or just because he had finished the sentence... They would meet up for a romantic rendezvous, and they just did that for years. And no commitment. Well, when Kristen <laughs> were they exclusive? <laughs> no. You think Clark is the? Yeah, I know, I know, type. I know. I was just kind of kidding, I guess. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, when um, Kristen turned thirty, she decided she was ready to have a baby, and despite not being in a relationship, she asked Clark if he were willing to father the child, and he agreed. But then after experiencing a traumatic miscarriage, they decided not to try again. Clark had too many baby mamas already. And as much as they loved one another, they both knew that they were way too different to have any type of conventional partnership. So mm. they're just friends now. Kristen did not keep in touch with Jan. She said that one time they did run into each other and decided to get dinner. And Jan's perspective on the robbery was like, oh, what a crazy dangerous thing we went through together, but yeah. we made it out. And that made her so angry. So Kristen being Kristen, she lays into him at this restaurant and did not hold back. She explained to him how terrified she had been, how much this experience had scarred her and how it has shaped the person that she's become. She believes to this day that Clark's role in the robbery actually saved her life and that if he hadn't shown up and defused the situation, Jan's erratic behavior would have resulted in people dying. I completely believe that. So hearing her perspective, Jan broke down crying. Good. Empathy. See, yeah. he's not a total maniac. Yeah. Clark said that today when people recognize him, he's treated like a celebrity, shaking hands, kissing him, patting mm -hmm. him on the back, posing for photos, stuff like that. He said once a few years ago, he was walking through Stockholm and he wandered over to where the bank was. There was a tour group of 20 to 30 Americans standing outside, all listening to a tour guide tell the story of this famous bank robbery. But then at one point, Clark interrupted and was like, that's not what happened. And the tour guide, not realizing who he was, started to argue with Clark and told him, go away. <laughs> Clark is such an attention whore. I know. He's such a ham. I know. But uh, eventually everyone figured out who he was and he called Kiki. <laughs> 
and put her on speakerphone to say hello to everybody. My God, the star quality this guy has. I know. So I mentioned this earlier, but Kristen disagrees with the concept of Stockholm Syndrome and finds it very offensive. She has maintained that the police did not care about her while she was in the bank, so she felt like she was on her own trying to survive this. She says she was the ideal hostage and she did what she needed to do. Under normal circumstances, we would be inspired listening to her story and celebrating her for surviving it. Yet Dr. Beirut, the psychiatrist Mm -hmm. who had you know, come up with this concept, made it clear that the primary focus became the hostages and their behavior. Instead of focusing on the criminals or the police or the community or the press or the justice system, everyone chose instead to diagnose the hostages as suffering from a syndrome. This means Kristen has spent most of her adult life feeling like she had done something wrong, like something is wrong with her, which creates this confusing guilt or shame for making it out alive. And really all she did was survive it. So to the people who believe in this concept of Stockholm Syndrome, Kristen asks, what would you do? Today, she can look back on this experience and say that more than anything, she just feels proud of herself for doing what she needed to do to survive. Dr. Beirut created a syndrome to silence a woman who questioned his decisions and publicly criticized him for risking her life. Clark says that he laughs every time he hears the term Stockholm Syndrome because like Kristen, he doesn't agree with it. He says he gets what people are trying to convey, but he doesn't believe that it applies to this bank robbery, and he resents how loosely people tend to throw the term around. Mm -hmm. A few years ago, he was on his boat in Antigua, and he said that he (laughs) met an American, and they spent a week together drinking and partying. Of course. And then it turned out, like after this American realized who he was, Mm -hmm. this American's mom was an FBI agent whose expertise was Stockholm Syndrome. Wow. So it's that kind of thing that just, it seems so surreal to him because he lived through it. And yeah. he's like, it's not a real it's thing. not like that. It was meant to shut her up. Yeah. It's not real. So I wanted to end this on a really good excerpt from David King's book because I personally walked away from the story with a totally different perspective on what Stockholm Syndrome really is. Really, that it's not real. It's not real. And that the premise of it, like there is some truth to that in some scenarios, but that actually is super rare. But mostly I was just very disgusted to learn that it was born out of a a blatant gender bias. Of course. When the hostages were being evaluated after their release, the psychiatrists and psychologists only questioned the women and excluded Sven, the only male hostage, entirely. They asked the women questions about their feelings toward their captors, often suggesting the women were somehow responsible. And they could not understand the hostility the women expressed towards every single one of the, quote, good guys that helped rescue them. And those mental health professionals eventually labeled the women, not Sven. They don't label Sven as having Stockholm Syndrome, just the three girls, even though Sven also defends the captors. They just described them as having some type of syndrome. So David writes in his book, quote, If these vulnerable female hostages started questioning the male authorities, rather than just being grateful for their rescue efforts, then the easy and convenient conclusion was that they must have suffered from a syndrome. The women could be then silenced and ignored while the police escaped responsibility for any questionable action. There is another point that should be noted. At the heart of Stockholm Syndrome is the emotional bond between captor and captive. Ironically, the strongest attachment formed in the bank was between Kristen and Clark. But Clark was not the one who had rushed into the bank and started seizing hostages. He was not the one who tied Kristen or her colleagues up and threatened to shoot them. 
He wasn't even in the bank when the nightmare ordeal began. When he did arrive, he came unarmed with words of hope and comfort. Clark was, in short, not really the captor. That is a big difference. Or as Clark put it, a big fucking difference. And that is the origin story of Stockholm Syndrome. I, so, yes, so here we go. <laughs> yes, I have thoughts. And, and I, this won't be well-formed because I am tired and um, I feel like I have a lot to say about this and I'm not a psychiatrist, but when I think of Stockholm Syndrome, I tend to th- relate it to abusive relationships where there is some sort of give and take of affection. So you're in a relationship you've signed up for and the man is abusive, but then also giving you a slight amount of affection and it creates some sort of trauma bond from mm-hmm. female partner to male. Yeah. But doing what we do, and obviously there's so many cases that we have not read or studied, we have never come across a situation where the female feels love and affection and loyalty to the men that have kidnapped and abused and done harm to them. If anything, it's, I never want to look at them again. I don't even want to be in the same courtroom as these people. I have never in my life, except for when shows or networks like Netflix sensationalize like that one 365, you know, that one where with the hot dude where he holds this woman captive and then she falls in love and doesn't want to leave sort of thing. I didn't watch the movie. I just heard about it. It's just abusive or 50 shades of gray, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. When in reality, what happened was the people that didn't stand up for these humans, the the people that were supposed to betrayed them. And then they're forced to find loyalty with the people that are not threatening them or causing physical harm. Right. And what's so crazy about this is you know Jan didn't have a plan but his plan was to get Clark there because Clark was the professional Clark even said um in one of the interviews that I listened to he said it he's like I have committed so many bank robberies and I have never once heard in all that time anyone on the other side say anything against my conduct or my behavior yeah (laughs) anything I've said or done I am a nice person yeah and it, that was such a good point is that he tr- he did not do anything wrong in that scenario he's there neutralize the situation and yet he's being he's now a part of a syndrome right exactly and then classification and of yon, abuse yon didn't have a plan and so then the police it was dr beirut that's who it yes. was is the psychiatrist he chose to push everyone into the vault he mm-hmm. chose to lock them into the vault then he chose to throw tear gas into the vault and he he chose all of these dumb things taunting the hostages with phone calls from their loved ones and not giving the hostages the time of day to hear what is it that you need how are you doing mm-hmm. you know they didn't he didn't even want to talk to them he only wanted to talk to clark the man they weren't complying so they became the bad guys too it was kind of like oh if, if you're not going to do what i want you to do then then good luck yeah and so f- for Kristen. It's this is well, I'm for for all four of them, all six of them. It's it's so unfortunate that she was just being silenced by the very man who put her in that scenario yes. or who made the scenario worse. He didn't put her in it. The media at the time, that was sufficient. And mm-hmm. literally Stockholm syndrome, what the entire world believes to be a real thing. If you go back and you actually study it. It's not legitimate. You can't even diagnose it. There's there's so many professionals, uh, psychiatrists and psychologists and stuff like that, don't even consider it a real thing. Don't they basically call it trauma bond? Yeah, that's that's a different version of it. 
That, that's a that's a much more accurate explanation. They everyone in that vault has a trauma bond, and mm-hmm. that's understandable. And that's that's not putting blame on anyone for anything. They bonded no. through a traumatic experience. That was just as traumatic for Jan and Clark too, because they also don't want to die, and they weren't anticipating the police doing what they did locking them in a fucking vault well clark showed up to help the situation he did just that and then they're like okay yeah (laughs) yeah but he said that you know his whole life every judge he goes before he hates him uh he wants to teach clark a lesson they all think he's a super arrogant son of a bitch Mm -hmm. and in one of the episodes that i listened to where he was being interviewed and he was explaining this the host is like are you an arrogant son of a bitch and without hesitation he goes Oh, yeah. Oh, God, he's self-aware. <laughs> you know, he totally knows. He doesn't give a shit. But he it's like, stuff. it's it's that kind of thing that like, it, it just shows, you know, to authorities, people like Jan and Clark are lower. They're just less than. and Or they're asking for it because they're in that yeah. situation. But really, their life, their life is a, a human life is a human life. And they risked all six lives carelessly. It's an ego trip, realistically. Yeah. It's very Man. disgusting. Well, that but was such a good story. I, I felt so humbled because I I just believed that Stockholm Syndrome was a thing. And then listening to this and, and realizing that Kristen has her entire life. She's like 70 or 71 now. She's in her early 70s now. Mm-hmm. Her whole life, people view her as like, oh, honey, you the had victim. this thing. And now you're, you're, but like, she's still suffering from it because she's still maintaining even in her 70s that the police were wrong and she was right to not trust them. And these two guys, they weren't actually harming her and it was okay for her to have an alliance with them. Like, no they, sense of justice. Pe- people still are, are viewing it as, you know, but really yeah. this is a made up syndrome to discredit a woman being upset with an, an entire organization gambling her life. I feel like that's incredibly valid because the entire time that we were listening or we were because I'm <laughs> looping you in because I, I think that you agree with me I, I would have Stockholm syndrome too if I were yeah, her and if that that's does what not this, make me if, weak yeah if that's what that is sure, sure. And, and her logic also is I was also just doing whatever I needed to survive so like let's say she didn't actually have positive feelings for them she survived she manipulated so right back you cannot fucking judge her She survived it. That's a thing worth celebrating no matter how someone survives it. I mean, the reason that I started um, even researching this story is because my next one involves um, a a victim similar, not similar to this at all, sorry, a kidnapping victim who experiences what they labeled as Stockholm syndrome. But really she was, it's very similar. Like she did what she needed to do to survive and people are judging her severely and it's oh my god i hate people it's yeah. like put yourself in that position and get yourself out of it yeah that, that, that's that's and then why face criticism that's for why, doing so yeah that's why Kristen says what would you do that's so gross i can't wait to hear that story it's intense it's very heavy well great <laughs> yeah well on that note uh thank you for telling us that story that was amazing you're welcome well happy holidays it's happy christmas week holidays Merry Christmas, happy holidays, all of the holiday stuff. Whatever you celebrate, happy yeah. to you and married to you. Yeah, <laughs> to you and yours. And to yours and mine. <laughs> and uh, we'll be here next week as usual. Yep. See you next week. Love you. Bye. If you enjoy this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. To view detailed source material, as well as content from today, please visit us on Instagram at Crime Bar Podcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help with the continued creation of it, 
you can support by donating to our Patreon, patreon.com slash crimebarpodcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley-Johnson and Ana Katarina. See you next week.